Our moral compass revolves around the distinction between good and evil. These two forces dominate our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. It is our impulse to classify everything in moral absolutes. But when we do, we miss the nuance and the humanity that define our very existence. I'm Edward Sturm. I'm Izzy Amoruso. And this is Duality. In our past episodes, we have brought you two stories and a conversation about them. This week on Duality, finale. As we retrace our steps through the season, we uncover a single thread. Good versus evil. This conflict defines our politics and our podcasts. Let's take a closer look. Just a note, we discuss all nine of our previous episodes today. While it's not necessary for listening to this episode, if you haven't done so yet, we encourage you to go back and check them out. So, uh, when we were just starting to research this podcast back in April, we thought that we needed to get a full understanding of the word duality. So, I did a, a typical Google search, and when you search for duality, you immediately get the definition of the word, which is the quality or condition of being dual. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a heavy metal song of the same <laughs> of the name duality by the group Slipknot, um, and then there's the mathematical definition, and that's what led me down an entire rabbit hole of philosophy and physics and a whole lot of other things I only barely understand. And that's when I stumbled upon an excerpt of a book written by August Stern, uh, who, Izzy pointed out, has a very similar last name to mine, although it is not the same. What really struck me had to do with the philosophical debate between monism, the idea that the mind and body exist as one, and dualism, the idea that the mind and body exist separately. In truth, both of these models are kind of flawed, and they don't really explain all that modern philosophers and scientists know about humans. But August Stern writes that we no longer have to choose. He says, quote, Among many often conflicting theories, a view is emerging that the answer to the puzzling phenomenon of the thinking brain lies in duality. And suddenly I understood the definition that I liked best. Uh, when a history of constrained and divided thinking comes up with nothing more than this puzzling phenomenon, we can find an answer in between, in duality. Uh, in a lot of ways, that whole discovery process is a metaphor for, for what finding a duality really is. On this podcast, we've tried to go beyond the surface-level gridlock, but when we do that, everything gets really complicated. We realize the competing identities contained within any single thing, even as simple as the definition of a word. This process gives us a fresh perspective that we wouldn't have found otherwise. It gives us a way of looking at familiar stories that is entirely new. We've had the opportunity this season to examine and discuss a lot of different narratives and their societal implications. What we've done on this podcast is taken two things that seem like they would be incongruous, like the bystander effect and hysteria illness, and talked about how they relate to each other in ways that we wouldn't expect. We've also taken two narratives that have more obvious connections and illuminated some key differences. There have been recurring themes throughout each episode, like moral absolutism and societal inequity, but the overarching duality that seems to be present in every episode 
is that of good and evil. And not only in our podcast, but in our world. Yeah, I think that when we we tend to see good and evil as a dichotomy, good versus evil, rather than as a duality. We're taught a binary existence of things as either good or bad from a very young age. A lot of this, I think, stems from a Judeo-Christian conceptions of heaven and hell, that people can be classified as either wholly good or wholly evil and then relegated for eternity of privilege or punishment on that basis. To a world that really embraces the binary, this makes a whole lot of sense, and we see it all over the place. Uh, From a gendered perspective, our society has struggled to accept people who are non-binary. From a competitive standpoint, we, we have a very binary idea of winning and losing. The most important thing for a sports team is their win-loss record. Uh, so this way of thinking is really ingrained. And in the same way, we are most at home as classifying someone or something in our lives as archetypally good or bad. In actuality, there's hardly any action or person or event that is completely positive or completely negative. You're right. I think of the show The Good Place, which is a a fictionalized TV show about where we go after we die. And and in that world, people who've died have all the actions they've taken throughout their lives added up for the positive or negative impact of those actions. It's a very black and white conception of every action having an inherent positive or negative value. So, for example, donating to charity would be plus 50 points, and lying to someone would be minus 10 points, or or something along those lines. That's very closely related to the idea of sin, or, or good works that we get from the Bible. The idea of actions being categorically good or bad is present in a lot of religions. And sure, that gives us a blueprint for our moral values, but it also inhibits us from seeing the nuance in certain situations. The context and circumstances around our actions can muddy the water in terms of assigning a clear morality to those actions. Those complexities are not always present in the literature or media we consume. That's where we get the idea of one-dimensional characters, characters that are static and don't experience any growth or learning, villains that are bad and will always be bad, or protagonists that are flawless and stay that way throughout the entire story. Three-dimensional characters are dynamic. They're just like real people. They have faults and motivations. They have redeeming factors, and, and they're able to struggle and learn. In a movie or book, we might find a handful of characters that are nice, round, three-dimensional characters, and everyone else around them tends to be one-dimensional. But in our real lives, everyone around us is a fully complex three-dimensional character, nuanced far beyond what we can initially perceive about them. When we're taught to look at people as singular entities, as either good or evil, we miss their humanity. Yeah, children's literature is very archetypal, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because the audience is is completely different, but it is the basis of all of our understanding of stories. I think about uh, Hansel and Gretel. The witch is a a bad guy for the sake of being bad, and we never understand any of her redeeming features. Now, the bad guys in real life aren't categorically evil. They are driven to act in a particular way by a myriad of complex circumstances and experiences. 
but the first stories that we are ever told leave out a lot of those details. The result is that we can clearly name who is good and who is evil in stories. Eventually, we assume that we can do that in real life, too. In a lot of ways, this podcast has been an effort to dispel some of those uh, mistakes and misjudgments. So, we wanted to take this opportunity to look back at our season through the lens of this duality. We began the season with an episode about McCarthyism and cancel culture. In my mind, this is one of the clearest examples of how we assume people are holistically good or evil. Cancel culture leaves very little room for growth. We take someone's alleged actions and equate that to their value as a person, and that's us succumbing to the fallacy of a one-dimensional existence. Edward, you told us about Anne Hale, who effectively had her life ruined because of her brief affiliation with the Communist Party. In hindsight, Anne's politics are not incredibly off-putting to us, but at the time, they were deemed reprehensible. That story is a perfect example of us associating a person's action with their entire being. We also began that episode with a question about prisons. Should they be focused on rehabilitation or punishment? Now, since we recorded that episode, a new imperative for conversations about racial justice has emerged, and discourse about prison abolition has inched its way closer to the mainstream. In truth, a lot of sentencing in the United States is driven by a prison industrial complex that profits off of high incarceration and high recidivism rates. It makes me think of a tweet that has been shared a lot recently that suggests if you think cancel culture is too unforgiving of past mistakes and doesn't allow for growth, wait until you hear about the U.S. criminal justice system. And there's a lot of truth to that. The way in which voting rights are stripped and employment opportunities are drastically reduced after serving time is an example of this mindset that people are categorically irredeemable and defined by their actions for their entire lives. Our second episode was about the collegiate response to the COVID-19 crisis, looking specifically at the messaging about coming back to campus in person versus online learning from Boston University and Purdue University. Every college has been forced into a position of considering the duality between economics and public health. But this situation becomes especially tricky because the entire pandemic has taken on a moral identity. When something as simple as wearing a mask is political, there's no clear consensus on what good and evil is in this situation. Yeah. In, in this case, schools are acting like corporations with the interest of their shareholders in mind. Both students and teachers would be considered shareholders, but... The issue here is that, one, you can't make everyone happy in this situation, and two, what would make the largest group happy, and the group that is contributing the most money, being the, the students and potential students, would be going back to campus and having in-person classes, which in turn would be detrimental for public health. It's a complex, nebulous, and, and never yeah. dealt with before situation that requires these institutions to consider thoroughly what the implications of their actions will be. After that, we shifted to an episode that was completely different. Previously, we'd, we'd set out to find a more layered understanding of our stories. 
But in this episode, we challenged those nuances. We asked if there were times when a simple, one-dimensional story was the more effective option. We talked about how reporting on the influence of drugs on Matthew Shepard's murder and the influence of alcohol on the rape committed by Brock Turner can undermine really important activism. This defense of a simple narrative might have fit better at the end of our season, to be honest, uh, because in so many ways, it's a challenge of the assumptions that our entire podcast is based on. As for how the episode factors into our discussion about good and evil, though, we have to ask the question, if it's true that simple narratives are sometimes best, then is that same idea also true in regards to good and evil? Are there times when we need to frame people in absolutes? Uh, Hansel and Gretel is, is the example I mentioned earlier. Now, it, it might be harmful to our empathy and to our worldview to understand the witch as just a one-dimensional character. To only understand uh, caricatures of good and evil is is a detrimental thing. But Hansel and Gretel exists as a cautionary tale, and it's much more effective in keeping children from wandering off into a stranger's house because it isn't confusing. Sometimes, lacking a little bit of nuance can actually be tactful. But in the same way that ignoring pieces of Matthew Shepard's story or Brock Turner's story limits our knowledge of what actually happened, we do have to be careful not to handicap our own worldview by framing things in absolutes just because it's easy to understand. Exactly. Looking at people through an absolutist lens makes it easier to create a polarization. Yes, simplicity can be effective because it allows for easier understanding, but it's also reductive. I'm reminded of an episode of Black Mirror, which is a TV show in which every episode depicts some sort of dystopian future or altered society. In the episode I'm thinking of called Men Against Fire, and this is kind of a spoiler, so consider yourselves warned, the characters who are soldiers are, are tasked with protecting a village from mutants that are deemed harmful. And it turns out the mutants are, are actually just refugees, and they look like regular people, but the soldiers had been given neural implants that caused them to see the refugees as these disgusting monsters. If we can strip away people's humanity, reduce them and, and other them to the point where we no longer empathize with them, that can be dangerous. Yes, this, this was a hyperbolic example from a fictional TV show, but there are many real-life examples as well. In the realm of, of real-life examples, the, the first that comes to my mind is World War II. We conceive that time in history as a slam-dunk, good-versus-evil story, uh, with the Allied powers as forces of good, and the Axis powers as forces of evil. And there is certainly some truth to that understanding— but setting up that clear-cut dichotomy at the time through racialized propaganda and nationalism allowed the good guys to do some pretty awful things. I mean, think the, the bombing of Dresden or the internment of Japanese Americans. In our next episode, we looked at the story of Kitty Genovese's murder. Her screams were allegedly heard by 38 neighbors, none of whom came to her aid. We also explored the story of an outbreak in a Belgian school that turned out to be entirely mental, a case of hysteria illness. 
the lack of empathy of Kitty Genovese's neighbors was a shocking contrast to the radical empathy of the Belgian schoolchildren who literally had physical symptoms after seeing their classmates become ill. We view connecting with others as an entirely positive thing, but it's not always black and white. In the same way that people and their actions are never wholly good or evil, neither are emotions. We view anger or sadness as, quote, negative emotions, but they are deeply necessary to the human experience. You're right. And that added element of emotionality certainly played into our next episode about apologies. We considered what makes a good apology and when it's appropriate to apologize. And those may seem like easy questions, but... People mess up apologies all the time, especially politicians. Our misunderstanding of the duality between good and evil is what makes us feel like an apology is such a big deal. If we decide that our actions are good, categorically and unequivocally, it becomes harder to understand people's reactions if they don't agree with your perception or or your actions had an unintended impact. Ego does factor in as well. But what really makes it hard to apologize is when we don't think we've done anything wrong. The reality is that it doesn't matter if what we did was good or evil. It's about the impact and the person affected. Our next episode was about college admissions and the implications of affirmative action on various racial groups. We examined the ongoing lawsuit between the group Students for Fair Admissions and Harvard University, as well as the Baki Supreme Court case that set the precedent for affirmative action. Yeah, uh, college education is a huge tool for equality in that it has been a door opener for so many first-generation graduates, but it has also acted as a huge barrier, even as a tool of oppression and white supremacy. That's one of the, the things that we discussed in that episode. In terms of the aims of reducing global and national inequality and getting us closer to a place where this this ideal of meritocracy can actually be actionable and and fair, the college admissions process works in both directions, as both good and evil, so to speak. Yeah, the binary framework of good and evil ignores how an action might seem immediately good, but can also have larger-scale negative effects, and vice versa. In our episode, For the Common Good, we talked about putting the needs of others before your own in in the context of the pandemic, and and it was interesting to consider how we view what good is when we aren't benefiting from it. A moral dilemma that's an example of a a situation where a smaller-scale negative action results in in larger-scale good is the thought experiment about killing baby Hitler— If you had the opportunity to kill baby Hitler, would you? It's a more dramatic version of the trolley problem, although Edward and I have discussed that there are many other factors to consider in this situation. For one, nationalism and the rise of the Third Reich was not just tied to one man, and in this hypothetical situation, you could take many alternative routes that would not be infanticide to prevent his rise to power. That being said, the question it's essentially asking is, could you kill an infant to save the lives of millions? And killing a child, if you take that action out of context, would be deemed evil. In this situation, I would contend that the ends justify the means. The idea of good and evil being tied into a sense of holistic good 
what's best for everyone was another recurring theme of this season. Similarly to what we discussed during our COVID Ghost Collegiate episode, our actions during this pandemic can really negatively impact others. That's why it's important to be able to self-reflect about our actions and act not for ourselves alone. That's a great point. So we've we've talked about the duality between good and evil in all kinds of things, in people, in actions, even in emotions. Um, in our episode Colossus, we discussed good and evil in our societal structures, I think, um, specifically in regards to capitalism. Izzy, your story was related to the book American Colossus, about titans of industry like J.P. Morgan at the turn of the 20th century. And then I talked about Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, which is inscribed in the Statue of Liberty and has become an anthem for immigration in our country. And both of these have very clear moral imperatives, although they aren't black and white. Uh, in the book that you read, those titans of industry brought about unprecedented levels of wealth stratification, inequality, and exploitation. Yet they also created advances that had far-reaching benefits. So labeling those men as absolutely good or absolutely evil is impossible or problematic. <laughs> Emma Lazarus laid out this ideal for our country, a nation that is strong because of its hospitality and hospitable because of its strength. An ideal that I would argue is a truly good one, but that ideal is still at odds with so much of the reality of our country. Yeah, I, I completely agree. S similar to the Colossus episode, our, our last episode, The Price of Dreams, involved the intersection of capital and morality. We questioned whether people should follow their passions, or a more certain and traditional route to success, but found that socioeconomic inequality complicated the answer. A part of the American dream is being able to provide opportunities for your kids that you didn't have, being, being able to pay for their college, maybe. The realization of that dream is a good thing, and yet the result is an inherent inequality of opportunity. The fact that intergenerational wealth plays such a large part in determining the outcome of individuals' futures is not a good thing. Reconciling those two issues is something we're still grappling with as a society. So, Izzy, we've, we've talked through all of our episodes now through this filter of uh, the duality between good and evil. So what do you think is the ultimate takeaway here? Well, Edward, that, that is the question, isn't it? Uh, I think that there are a couple big ones. The first that comes to mind is that, as we mentioned earlier, we've been conditioned from a young age to think in moral absolutes, and that's just not the way the world operates. It may take effort to look past the surface in any given situation, but I think it's worth doing. Another takeaway that, that kind of goes alongside that is when you dive deeper and seek to understand things better, they do not become easier. In fact, they, they get harder. But that doesn't mean you should shy away from complexity. We absolutely should not shy away from complexity. That might be the greatest thing I've learned from duality. When you think you know exactly what you're talking about, and suddenly you realize that there's a perspective that you never considered, that's incredibly worthwhile. I hope that we can take away all of the connections that exist within our history and our culture. 
nothing exists in a vacuum. And when we think we found a completely novel problem, we probably just have a bit of looking around to do before we can find the answer lurking somewhere else. When we start to see absolutes, just the good or just the evil, that's when we need to back up, do a bit of research, and find a duality. That's it for this season of Duality. We are so appreciative of the continued support we have received from all of you. Thank you so much for listening. 